Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 132. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. October's prize is a copy of My Hearty Commendations the transcribed letters and remembrances of Thomas Cromwell by Caroline Angus. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of October, I'll be chatting to Gareth Russell about Catherine Howard and the Tudor Queens. Please get in touch if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Hans Holbein the Younger is Franny Moyle. Franny is the author of The King's Painter, a look at the life, times, and extraordinary work of the Tudor artist Hans Holbein the Younger. Having grown up surrounded by artists, she won a scholarship to Cambridge University to study literature and history of art. She first pursued a career in arts TV, where she led the BBC's cultural office as its commissioner for music and arts. Turning to writing in 2005, she has produced four critically acclaimed books focusing on British cultural figures, including the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, J.M.W. Turner and Constance Wilde, wife of Oscar. Her look at the PRB, Desperate Romantics, was adapted into a six-part series for BBC TV. Both The King's Painter and her biography of Constance Wilde featured as Radio 4 Book of the Week. In 2014, she returned to St John's College, Cambridge, as a visiting fellow. 
She's a trustee of Turner's House in Twickenham and lives between London, Shropshire and Provence. Franny has three children, two cats, a dog and a husband. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Franny. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Now, I suppose a really good place to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Well, a million years ago, I uh, studied the history of art at Cambridge. That was my degree. And then I veered off into arts television for a 20-year career before realising that I really wanted to go back to my roots. So in 2005, I turned my back on telly and began writing. And so uh, The King's Painter is my fourth book. (laughs) But most of my focus is on British art. Now, as you've you've mentioned that you've written a number of books, four books, and they include um, books like Desperate Romantics, The Private Lives of the Pre-Raphaelites, and Constance, The Tragic and Scandalous Life of Mrs. Oscar Wilde. Today, however, we're going to focus on your most recent work, which, as you've just said, is The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the inspiration, I suppose, behind this project and when you first became interested in Holbein. Increasingly, what I have found is that British art is sort of underrepresented on the world stage. You know, when 
when you go to bookshops, uh, if you do a sort of straw poll there, you know, of, of what books uh, sort of dominate the bookshelves, you'll see the French Impressionists. You know, you'll see the Italian Renaissance. And there is, you know, British art is a quieter, slightly understated part of art history. And that's really why I started with the Pre-Raphaelites. I then went on and did a big biography of J.M.W. Turner because I just wanted to try and sort of put the story of British art out there again. Now, Holbein, of course, a, a, a German artist by birth, but who spent half his career um, in London. I, I think the thing about that is we all know his paintings. You think of Henry VIII and it's a Holbein that just pops into your mind, I su suggest or suspect. And yet very little is known about the, the painter behind those images. And so again, it was me just thinking, well, you know, let's Let's dig in and, and, and tell that story. And oh gosh, when did I first encounter Holbein? Of course, I've said he's always been there, you know, since I was a child. Funnily enough, talking about the image of Henry VIII, you know, we had these uh, ladybird books. I don't know whether they're, they're a sort of global phenomenon or not, but certainly in UK publishing, you had as a child ladybird books that were sort of potted histories for children. And sure enough, it was a kind of version of Holbein's images of Henry and the Queens that were in the sort of Tudor series. So even as a very small child, he, he was already creeping in into my sort of consciousness. But it was really when I saw in the flesh some of his drawings, the, the Royal Collection did a wonderful Holbein ex exhibition some quite some years ago now. Uh, but I remember looking at those and thinking, my goodness, you know, really, out of the whole of the history of art, there are very few artists who can really make it feel as if what you're looking at is about to blink. Yes, I so, think some of his portraits are just unbelievable, aren't they? You just yes, keep staring yes. and waiting exactly yes. for them to move. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I, I totally agree with you. I think all of our listeners, whether they know it or not, have seen a Holbein if they've been looking into the Tudor period. But like you say, we don't really hear very much about his, his early life, his family. What can you tell us about that? Well, he was born in Augsburg in Bavaria. And his, he was born into a, a family of artists. His father ran, and his uncle together ran a very successful workshop in Augsburg. And his father was an extremely eminent painter, also called Hans Holbein, so now known as Hans Holbein the Elder. Uh, and our Holbein, if you like, is Hans Holbein the Younger. And his brother was also an artist. So I suppose this fits the sort of late medieval tradition of you know, workshop practice, clearly he was spotted as being a huge talent, I think, very early on. His father rather lovingly sneaks portraits of the young hands into a couple of his devotional pieces. But the tragedy of Holbein's story as a young man is that his father goes bankrupt when he's about 15. The workshop splits, uh, his father and his uncle fall out, it seems. His uncle moves to Bern in Switzerland. His father goes to Issenheim. And Holbein and his elder brother Ambrosius together move to Basel in Switzerland and sort of start anew, really, um, sort of lost boys. But they are instantly very, very successful, or at least 
Hans is instantly very, very successful and Ambrosius moderately successful. And I think it's probably because news of this genius, young genius, young prodigy in Augsburg went ahead of him. I think, you know, he already perhaps had something of people had heard there was this extraordinary young man because uh, he finds work very, very quickly. And he's really based in Basel until he comes to London uh, in, in the late 1520s. And can you tell us a little bit more about some of those works that you mentioned that his father did that in fact feature the young Holbein? Yeah, well, I can tell you if you want a, a story about how I discovered um, what now we think is the earliest portrait of yes. Hans Holbein, the younger, by his father. There's a very famous image of a, a sort of family a group family portrait that Hans Holbein the Elder smuggled into a devotional work. Now, this devotional work is part of something called the Basilica series. This was a series of paintings of Basilica, funnily enough, um, but, and, and the stories associated with them that were painted for uh, nuns in St. Catherine's Convent in Augsburg. And the idea was nuns weren't allowed to go on pilgrimage, so... Instead, they, they could look at an image of a place that monks would be able to visit in person because they're nuns, they couldn't go there. Anyway, in one of this Basilica series, the series dedicated to St. Paul without the walls in Rome, there is a, an image of um, the baptism of St. Paul. And in the corner, Hans Holbein the Elder has smuggled uh, a picture of himself uh, and his two sons into the corner. And this was painted in 1504. And it's an odd little group because although they're standing right next to an image of Paul, Hans Holbein the Elder is quite clearly pointing not at Paul, but at his young son Hans, who would be uh, seven in, in 1504, just about in, in that painting. And Ambrosius, his elder, Hans, the younger's elder brother, is wrapping his arms around his brother. So all the focus is it, within this group is on Hans. And this is why I say that I, I suspect from very early on, he was uh, significant to the family. There was something magical about this child. I went to look at this painting, which still hangs in the building for which it was originally intended, because now what was St. Catherine's convent has been subsumed into the art gallery and museum in, in Augsburg. And so I went, of course, to, to look at this, to pay homage to this very early image of Holbein the Younger by his father. And uh, it was one of the last pictures I viewed in, in, the, in the gallery. And so beforehand, I had dutifully looked at every single painting by Hans Holbein the Elder as I, and of course his contemporaries, and I sort of did my own pilgrimage. As I was looking at the painting, I thought... Uh, no, there's, a, there's another child. There's another Hans Holbein the Younger, you know, in this gallery, I swear. And I went back. And in a, a memorial painting that for the Walter family that Hans Holbein the Elder had made two years earlier, in 1502, lo and behold, there is a little portrait of an even younger Hans Holbein the Younger, this time smuggled into the story of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And uh, according to the Gospel of St. John, it's a little boy who presents the fishes to Christ, who then, you know, divides up the loaves and the fishes and feeds so many people. And this little boy is a two-year younger version of the other little boy I'd just been looked at, been looking at without doubt. 
And this little boy is in contemporary 16th century dress. He's got the same little tunic as the other little boy, the same little belt with its little work box and a cloth. And whilst he's in contemporary dress, no one else in the scene, the biblical scene is, everyone else is in biblical robes. So that this is, of course, Hans Holbein the Elder telling us, no, no, this is my son here now, now, look, he's dressed as you will see him running down the street. You know, when you make a find like this, you sort of do a sort of weird, you check yourself. And I thought, well, this cannot be that there is a painting hanging on a wall in a national gallery and no one has spotted that there's an early, you know, this is impossible. I've, I've obviously missed the reference. So when I got home, you know, I went through every book I could find on Hans Holbein the Elder, every article. Nowhere could I find that anyone had spotted this. So I then approached one of the leading academics on Holbein, the younger, and said, am I mad? Is, is really, is this me? Have I really found this portrait? And he looked at it. And he said, yes, and I think uh, Holbein's brother's in there as well. So he actually made another discovery. So then we were both really excited and he went off and checked all his colleagues, including the head of the gallery in Augsburg. And lo and behold, it was a discovery. And so anyway, that, forgive me for a rather self-indulgent story. But the point is that um, I think it, this does signify there was something special about this child. A, a long way to say it. Sorry. Oh, no, that was fantastic. What a wonderful story. And I think anyone who's ever researched anything, you know, written a book can understand how incredibly exciting that must have been. And I think it offers hope, Franny, that there's still so much out there that we haven't yet discovered, which I what? love. <laughs> I think that is so true. And with the greatest respect, don't get me wrong, to the academic field, and I've, I do it myself, we tend to be reliant on what other scholars have written and quite often take it at face value and you know you, you know sometimes you do need to put in the hours and go and see things in the flesh or just question just question things just real stuff back a, a, a little bit and as I say sometimes when you're doing desk research you just can't do that you have to accept certain statements by scholars but every now and then it's it's great to to be able to get out on the road to do some primary research and lo and behold as you say there is still stuff out there I mean how people have missed this I do not know but they've been looking for other things in that painting they'd not been thinking about it because the other portrait perhaps is again and again and again and again cited as the earliest and most significant painting so no one was looking for another one you know I don't know I don't know why but yeah there is still a lot out there Fantastic. I love that story. And so let's talk a little bit more about Holbein's early career. So you've said he was he was obviously incredibly talented and that, that people knew that quite early on. So what sort of commissions was he working on in this early point in his career? So when Hans Holbein the Younger went to our Hans Holbein, went to Basel in 1515, he was still a teenager and he was not a master of a guild. Now the guild system had a very which is a bit like a sort of trade union to to want to make a sort of not quite appropriate comparison but it's the nearest thing I can sort of think of and it had very stringent rules you know young artists were not really supposed to be branching out on their own or, or at least certainly not signing their works unless they were 
an accredited master of a guild. Now, of course, Holbein was not an accredited master of a guild and wouldn't be for a few years, but uh, that didn't seem to hold him back at all. He seemed to break all the rules. And again, I wonder whether this is because he was considered special from, from the start. Very early on in Basel, he began illustrating. Uh, Basel was a huge printing and publishing centre, and he began providing sort of Renaissance-style illustration for one of the leading publishers. In fact, he began working for all the publishers, but most famously for Froben, who was a big, big publisher. And he began signing his, his illustrations, again, slightly in contravention of Guild rules. He very quickly was commissioned by some of the most, in fact, the most senior figure in Basel, Basel's young mayor, out of, uh, also called uh, Jakob Mayer, uh, spelt differently. This is a man of extreme wealth who could have had the pick of the best artists in Northern Europe but it was Hans Holbein who painted his portrait. And uh, he did a series of other important portraits in Basel, notably of Erasmus of Rotterdam, who, who was there, and the circle of Erasmus as well. You know, he was part of the humanist circle. And he also, uh, not surprisingly for um, a pre-Reformation uh, Switzerland, he was commissioned to do a lot of devotional paintings, very famously the the Darmstadt Madonna, the Solothurn Madonna. And the other thing he very quickly was commissioned for were these huge scale frescoes. He was a, a painter who could work with ease or at an enormous scale, which I think is also one of the extraordinary things about him. Basel's houses at that time, as many of them are actually still today, and certainly actually this is true of Augsburg as well, if you visit today you, you still can see this not only were they highly colored but they were often highly decorated and he was commissioned to do these astonishing trompe l'oeil facades for houses and buildings that made what were actually flat surfaces look like intricate fantastical architectural sort of follies with niches and balconies and twisting staircases and you know sort of fantasy buildings and I think that's important because I think the one thing we forget about Holbein until we get to the ambassadors uh, and his anamorphic skull is we forget that he was the utter master of perspective in his moment. No one could come close, not only to, you know, to his ability to render trompe l'oeil, persuasive perspective, but also, of course, you know, anamorphosis, this sort of strange um, scientific perspective, which is even more magical, where objects that have no sense suddenly become something when you stand in a, at a particular position in relation to them, you know, and seem to float beyond yeah. into a sort of new dimension beyond the sort of canvas or the... So all those things were already in his output, if you like, in Basel. Extraordinary. And and you talked about Erasmus there in, in that um, segment. What was their relationship like? And what influence do you think this, you know, renowned humanist scholar had on Holbein's life and on his work as well? I think Erasmus was hugely important to Holbein, both intellectually and practically. I mean, just to deal with the practical thing, you know, Erasmus was so famous at the time. He was both a popular author, um, writing 
satire-like in praise of folly. He wrote a very popular book called Adages, which was sort of Greek sayings, you know, Rolling Stone, Guns No Moss, which was incredibly popular. And But beyond that, his scholastic work, his work on the uh, original Greek testaments, you know, the Bible, his uh, treatises on Christianity, these made him, he had a profile where he had access to any court in Europe. He was the intellectual that the kings and princes and, you know, the religious, the sort of pontiffs of the time, everyone wanted a piece of Erasmus. So he had an, inter, well, an international network, certainly a pan-European network of contacts. And it was Erasmus who undoubtedly helped Holbein get into Henry's court, gave him sort of letters of introduction, sort of sent him over there. So that, so, you know, there is an argument that without Erasmus, he'd have never perhaps even got to England or not, who knows? So that's one thing, practical level. At an intellectual level, I, I, I think there's evidence that, that in Basel, Holbein became very much part of the sort of satellite of intellectuals, the circle of intellectuals and circle of humanists that, that were sort of orbiting around Erasmus. And, you know, I think he certainly influenced his outlook at that period in his, his life. But importantly, Erasmus gave Holbein work. I mean, he painted Erasmus's portrait over and over again. He redesigned his device. He created portraits not only on a larger scale, but on a smaller scale. So in a way, he, he became, his workshop became the, the main sort of hub for Erasmia. And of course, particularly the printed work, you know, the device, that would have accompanied Erasmus's publications and so on and so forth. These were international publications. And so Holbein's fame, you know, Holbein was hanging on to the coattails in a, in a way, you know, opened a book on Erasmus and you saw Holbein's little signature and, and uh, uh, some Holbein work. So, you know, he was a fantastic promotional tool in a way for, for Holbein. But I think there is a sense that Holbein probably shared a, was very influenced and probably shared a lot of Erasmus's opinion or was influenced by Erasmus's opinion and writing. I think that's suggested in some of the earlier work. And so is this how he also comes to the notice of Thomas More as well and, and the More family? Yes, Erasmus and More were, were huge friends. And so one of the letters of introduction that Erasmus provided Holbein with in 1526 when Holbein said he wanted to explore working in England was sent to Thomas More. Erasmus writes to, to More encouraging him to help Holbein and certainly in the autumn of 1526, late autumn, More writes back to Erasmus and says, you know, you're your artist friend has arrived and he's a very great painter. So we've, there's, a, there's that little sort of correspondence. And it seems that Moore really did help Holbein. It seems that Holbein was instantly taken in uh, to his household, most likely that he lived in Chelsea uh, with, the, with the Moore family during his first sojourn in, in, in England between 1526 and 1528. And of course, one of the ways Moore instantly helped him was to commission his own portrait, the wonderful portrait that's now in the Frick Collection in New York. And then, of course, he went on to do this astonishing large-scale 
family portrait of Thomas More and his entire family. Now, sadly lost, it was burnt, I think, in the, uh, or destroyed in the um, 18th century. Uh, but it exists as a preparatory drawing, and that is now back in Basel in the Kunstmuseum collection there. And Moore also, I think, was the conduit to the court. Of course, Moore at this time was a very senior member of Henry's court. He was the, the star, if you like, of it. There are descriptions of Henry visiting Chelsea and putting his arm around Moore and walking around Moore's garden with him. But Thomas Moore's brother-in-law, John Rastell, happened to be one of the main producers, if you like, for Henry's court, producing sort of pageant, which was extremely important as a diplomatic tool. And within weeks, really, of Holbein arriving in London, he's also working for Rastell on a major piece of sort of political propaganda, a great pageant that Henry is wants to stage for French ambassadors in the spring of 1527. And Holbein is straight in there producing uh, astonishing paintings and decorative work, a great ceiling for um, some of the temporary buildings that are, that are created for, for this celebration at Greenwich, these festivities, as they were called, at Greenwich. So thinking about his first stay that you've been talking about, so between 1526, 1528, he's in London. That's so fascinating that he's staying with the, the Moore family. That's really interesting. Does he have a London workshop? Where's he working from? Again, going back to this thing about guilds, if you were foreign, it was very difficult for you to have a workshop. Again, the, these guilds were, as I say, a bit like trade unions. They wanted to keep competition out. So, so the short answer is no, he didn't have a workshop at this time. Foreigners were afforded more rights if they worked for the court. And so he would have been given a, a sort of permission to work regardless of his status as non-national, if you like, because of his work for the court. But it's hard to know exactly where he was working at this point. We know that a huge painting that he delivered for the Greenwich festivities was, was painted off-site and it was delivered by barge. So it may have been that more gave him some sort of um, space at his own ample in his own ample sort of household the new building that's very large it may have been that he was provided you know rooms elsewhere or perhaps in one of the workshops of one of the other English painters there was a painter John's John Brown who was at that point the king's painter and it may have been he was able to work in Brown's workshop but he would have been protected in a way by his association with the court at that point but no as far as we know no formal workshop at that point. And during this first visit, does he paint Henry or does that come a bit later? Well, that comes later. I, I mean, he does paint Henry in that the scene he paints for the festivities is a great battle scene. It's lost. It's the Battle of the Spurs, 1513, and it represents the uh, British, the English, I must say, victory over the French at the Battle of the Spurs in 1513. And it would have depicted in that battle scene a young Henry so yes then there was he did paint a, a version of Henry but it is long lost the other thing he did do however at this stage was he he made a design for a, a astonishing sort of renaissance patterns and imagery on Henry's uh, show armor Henry did a, a, a special joust to which the French ambassadors 
uh, were invited. He appeared in this astonishing, gilded, shining, golden armor that was completely covered with the most ornate Renaissance uh, design and motif that was by Holbein. A copy of that armor, which Henry gave to the French ambassador, is now in the Met in New York. So he, he was certainly engaged with the image of the king at that point. It always amazes me how versatile these artists are. They're, they're just doing okay. so many different things. It's totally. unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So can you talk to us a little bit about Holbein's actual portrait techniques and maybe some of his working practices? I love hearing about all the, the, the nitty gritty. His preparatory studies are, are pretty uniform. He would make a drawing on paper. By 1526, he was drawing increasingly in sort of chalks. Before that, he was drawing in silver point, which is what his father would have would have drawn in. And uh, a little later, he widens his repertoire to include chalk as well. He would have made a drawing. And what is quite clear is because so many of the portraits he delivered, when you we have both the preparatory studies and the finished portrait, and they are so similar, it is quite clear that um, he transferred the drawing directly onto the, the, med you know, the medium that was intended for the finished work. Now that was sometimes parchment, sometimes paper, more often than not, it was uh, wood um, and sometimes it was canvas. And so what he would use is he would use um, a little device called a pouncing wheel, which was a, a little wheel on a stick and the wheel had little sharp points so that when you rolled it along your outline of your drawing, it would make tiny little holes uh, in the drawing and you could then blow chalk through it or, you know, you could transfer dots which then transfer the, the outline. So his, his technique is, is one of transfer nine times out of 10 where, and, and sometimes you can see he's scaled drawing up or down. So he's used an original drawing, but they are again, so similar that he's obviously using instruments to very carefully scale up or scale down. So what is clear is that he doesn't want to deviate or he wants to minimize the deviation from his initial impression, which is as close to life as he can make it. So this, this desire for verisimilitude, for proximity to the actual sitter is, is you know, quite clear in his practice. And in terms of miniatures, Franny, how did he how did he do his miniatures? Were there preparatory sketches for miniatures as well? Yes, it seems to be exactly the same. You know, he again he would have done a larger drawing, and then because again some of the drawings do seem to relate to miniatures, he would have done a larger drawing and scaled it down using instruments, and then probably working with a big magnifying glass because the detail on the miniatures, I mean, I had the real privilege, there's a miniature of Anne of Cleves in the V&A, and I had the absolute privilege of being allowed to look at it under a microscope, and you cannot believe, this is a miniature that is just a few centimetres in diameter, and when you look at it under the microscope, you can see every eyelash, every, every strand of hair on the eyebrow. You can see pearls rendered with light and shade. I mean, it takes your breath away. So he must have been working with single hair brushes, 
and under some form of lens. You know, not, not that much is known about the magic of miniature, but and certainly scaling down, because the, the Anne of Cleves is a, a case in point. It is a very, very close to the original large-scale portrait that's in the Louvre. And so he obviously works with some, some sort of mathematical tools to scale down and scale up. That's amazing that you were holding that, Franny, and imagine how close Henry had that to his face when he had a I good know. look. I <laughs> know. And it, it, was, it must have been in his hand or in his oh. pocket at some point. I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's I know. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It really just makes your head kind of go, oh. Um, and I want to talk to you about a specific portrait miniature that's that's kind of been in the news a bit lately, we could say, that's of a young woman in a gold dress and jewels that in the 18th century, and most of our listeners will probably know it as Catherine Howard, that was identified as Catherine Howard in about the 18th century. However, I, I believe you've proposed recently that he may, in fact, be Anne of Cleves in, in just more English attire. So what led you to start thinking on this track? Well, I think this is a great example of what we were talking about earlier of people kind of going going with what's been written. And, you know, sometimes it, that's about sometimes that's about being polite sometimes, I think, or a sort of academic. No, not polite. That, that is about an academic respect. You know, if if a particular work has been identified by eminent people and if in, you know, attribution in the royal collection, something is said you know, has been identified as Catherine Howard, you know, that just carries on then in legend, you know, that just keeps going. It keeps getting cited as Catherine Howard until people just accept that uh, attribution and don't question it. And I would have had no reason necessarily to question that attribution either, except for I happen to have printout, a reproduction of that miniature on my desk, and next to it, printout of the Anna Cleves miniature on my desk. And they just happened to be next to each other. And I was shuffling around amongst some papers and I just looked at them. And to me, it was like a then it was just like the young Hans Holbein <laughs> thing. It was so obvious to me that this was the same woman. And once I'd seen that, I could not unsee it. <laughs> I just couldn't. And I, I blew them up and blew them down and started asking my members of the members of my family if they thought it was the same woman. And, and, you know, why had no one else seen this? So from that point, just a pure observation, I began to ask myself, well, it looks like Anne of Cleves. Could it be her? Now, why does it look like Anne of Cleves? Well, you know, if you put the two miniatures together, the difficulty is one is full face. The Anne of Cleves miniature in the in the V&A that is full face. The Catherine Howard allegedly miniature is in three quarter profile. So it's it's difficult to make a comparison directly because they are in different attitudes. Nevertheless, they share some considerable likenesses. You know, the length of the nose the shape of the mouth and also the mouth is held in the same position a little bit like a Mona Lisa smile which is very specific to Anna Cleves but for me what what really makes the comparison persuasive is the eyes and eyebrows unlike the other women Holbein paints his pictures of Anna Cleves shows a woman with very heavy lids you know her eyelids are really quite specific they, they are, are large and heavy and it gives her a slightly soporific look. And she also has quite thick eyebrows. And to me, these miniatures were undoubtedly of the same woman. And the date, which 
people have always attributed as 1540 to the Catherine Howard uh, miniature, of course, is good for Anne of Cleves because in 1540, of course, she was married to Henry in the January. So I needed to find a good portrait of Anne of Cleves in, in, in three-quarter profile to continue, if you like, the physical comparison. A researcher, a wonderful researcher and writer called Heather Darcy, who's recently written a biography of Anne of Cleves, had uh, discovered or rediscovered a very good three-quarter portrait of Anne of Cleves by Bartle Brunn, who was the Cleves court painter in the uh, Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And I got a copy of this image. And this is in three-quarter profile. And although it's not by Holbein, it's by Brunn, when you put the Rosenbach three-quarter profile next to Catherine Howard, suddenly the physical evidence, if you like, strengthens. They look very similar. And those heavy lids are there, the eyebrows, the nose is very similar. And so I felt now a little bit more confident that this was indeed the same woman. So what other clues are there? Well, on her sleeve, if you look at the Catherine Howard, on her sleeve, there does seem to be the Cleves escarbuncle embroidered into the fabric of her sleeves. That's helpful. She's wearing a French hood and English courtly dress. A French hood was a fashion item. It was a, the type of headgear that was widely worn by English women in the Tudor court. Now, one of the things about Anne of Cleves was it's clear from the um, diplomatic communications that people found her German dress really quite strange and ugly. And I think one of Henry's initial problems was just how peculiar she looked to the English eye. And so there is an account that very quickly she wanted to please the king. And there's an account that very early in January, she appears wearing a French hood and English dress. So uh, as a woman who was found herself, you know, wanting to present as English, and no longer as from Cleves, you know, prepared to be the English queen. It strikes me as appropriate that in early 1540, straight after her marriage, when she began wearing English dress, she or Henry might recommission a miniature appropriately. So the other thing is, in, in the other portraits of uh, Anne of Cleves, you don't see her hair colour. And some of the people who have had an issue with my argument, say, well, Cleves was described as blonde, fair, by, there are very, there aren't very many descriptions of her written descriptions, but one of the descriptions comes from Edward Hall in his Chronicles, and he describes her coronation, he describes her as having fair hair. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's just one person's description. And what we see in the Catherine Howard miniature is someone not with dark hair, but certainly not with blonde hair. You might call it a sort of light brown, arguably fair, um, but certainly not blonde. But what, and again, this is the wonderful work of Heather Darcy researching the Cleves family. What Heather has shared with me is a very early portrait of the Cleves women where there is, um, where they, their hair can be seen. And they do, in fact, all have this sort of light brown hair. It's exactly the same colour as in the portrait. So I think one begins to build an argument to support, if you like, what my eyes are telling me, that the, this is Anne, 
not Catherine. And then if you look at Catherine, you hear descriptions of her as a rare beauty, a fresh beauty. We know she was only about 17 when she was married. And then you look at the Howard miniature and this seems to be an older woman uh, in her mid to late 20s, as Anne of Cleves was. Doesn't seem to be a 17 year old girl. She seems older. And without wanting to impose a sort of modern, you know, it's very hard to describe what, what beauty is. It's always in the eye of the beholder. However, it's hard to ascribe the term of fresh beauty to the, the Howard miniature, in my view. I think there are other Holbeins that lend themselves more to being of Catherine Howard than this. She's wearing royal jewellery, the Catherine Howard. She's wearing some of Jane Seymour's jewellery. And we know that uh, that jewellery that can be seen in the Howard portrait was in the inventory of Howard's possessions after her execution. And again, that has been used to support, if you like, the Howard attribution. But of course, what Henry did always was once one queen had gone, he took the jewellery and gave it to the next. And so equally, that argument does in fact support the Anne of Cleves attribution, because Henry would have almost certainly made Jane Seymour's jewellery, put it at, at, at Anne of Cleves' disposal, only then, of course, to take it off and hand it on to Catherine Howard. But that's what he did. I mean, there are, you know, we know um, Jane Seymour won, wore um, Catherine of Aragon's jewellery. We know Anne Boleyn, you know, that Henry just handed his wife's jewellery down to the next, to the incomer. So that that's my case. Uh, I have to say that Heather Darcy and a number of other historians do agree with me. They, I hope she won't mind me saying this, but I am in contact with them and they, they had already, funnily enough, come to the same conclusion. It's just that I happen to be the first one to, to write it down. That's, that's just a bit of, um, you know, happenstance. But I, I think the arguments are strong, actually, really strong. And I think once, like you say, once you see it, it's very difficult to unsee it. Which is, and I encourage oh, well, I'm glad you think that. Yeah, I mean, oh, no, me, I, I do. Like a, you know, it's one of, it was like I'd been hit by a thunderbolt. I, the minute I saw it, I just could not unsee it. And it if you look true. at the Rosenbach portrait by another artist, to me it's obvious, you know, yes. but, you know, well, there you go. Yeah, and I do. I encourage everyone listening to, to have a look at the portraits we've been discussing and hopefully I'll be able to share some of those on social media so that you can see and make your own you know, thoughts and decisions. It's a fantastic, really interesting discussion. I love it. So let's talk just briefly about Holbein's later years. So he returns to, so he leaves and then he returns to England. Is that right? Yes. Again, the old guild system, you know, as a master in a, in in Basel's guild system, he was given certain privileges, but he would lose those privileges if he left the city for more than two years. So, you know, he had a family, he had a workshop still ticking over. He had to go back, if you like, to, to renew his commitment to his citizenship of Basel. Um, you know, he didn't want his fam workshop dismantled, you know, his privileges revoked. So that is why he would have almost certainly had to return in 1528. And he sort of hangs on in Basel until the early 1530s. But I think the lure of the court was far too great. I also think 
it's quite clear that in 1529 there was the thing called the Bildersturm in, in Basel. This was a moment of huge iconoclasm when the sort of new, the wave of Protestants, Protestantism brought with it a, a massive destruction of religious artworks in the town. Paintings were burned, statuary ripped down, wall murals whitewashed. And I think, obviously, for Holbein, most of his patrons actually fled the city at that point. You know, some of the great the patrons of some of his greatest works of art literally slipped away in the middle of the night because they felt no longer safe. And I think although he managed to get on with the new regime because he was ever the pragmatist, the political pragmatist, I think it was clear that work was drying up. So the lure of the English court where he had been so accepted so quickly was strong. I think he knew that he would have a good there was a good market for portraiture over there because there weren't many skilled portrait artists. So it was a market he could dominate very quickly. And again, portraiture was affected by the Reformation. It was considered indulgent. There was a more ascetic, you know, sort of uh, culture that came in. You, you know, the, the Protestants were more doer. They didn't, portraiture was indulgent. So that sort of dried up as well when this much sparser kind of mentality in, in, in terms of the commissioning of, of art came into Switzerland. Whereas, you know, England at that time was strongly Catholic and portraiture was on the up. So it's a sort of, to use a current phrase, it was, I think, a bit of a no-brainer for, for, for Holbein to, to move over there. So by 1532, he's certainly back in London. I mean, but what a different London from the one he left because Thomas More was no longer the great golden star of the Tudor court. Uh, he was in disgrace because he had um, discreetly, but nevertheless clearly related his objection to, to the Boleyn marriage. And of course he would be executed in, in due course. Um, so no living in Chelsea with Thomas More anymore. Instead, this time, uh, what Holbein did, it seems, is he installed himself with the German community, the Steel Yard, as it was called in London. And this was a sort of interesting, protected community. It was almost like um, a little bit of Germany in London. It was contained within walls and it had its own rules and rights regulations. It was controlled by the Hanseatic League. It was a sort of diplomatic sanctuary in a way. So although he was not at this, you know, technically not an English guild master, I'm sorry, a master of an English guild, he could work with some liberty within the steel yard because that was its own sort of territory, if you like. It wasn't governed by the rules of the city of London in the same way. However, of course, that soon became redundant because within a few years, if, if not immediately, he became Henry's King's painter. I mean, John Brown, the former King's painter, died in 1532, just as Holbein arrived. We know that by 1536, Holbein is definitely has the title of the King's painter, which is a salaried court position. But the paperwork before 1536 isn't really there. So it, he could have being made the king's painter very, very quickly. It's, it's unclear, but um, he certainly almost immediately is working for some of the most important people uh, in Henry's court. 
I think there's a lot of evidence that he was working for Anne Boleyn instantly. There's a famous portrait, portrait of Thomas Cromwell, who was the new rising star, painted it straight away, 1532. But alongside um, these wonderful portraits of German um, merchants resident in the Hansa that he does across 1532, 1533, 1534, which also reflects, I think, his, where he's based, which is rather nice. And is his family there with him? Is this more a permanent move that he had in mind? His wife, Elspeth, and his four children were very much left in Basel. But Holbein dies in London, doesn't he? He does die in London. He dies in 10 years later. He dies in 1543, probably in October, November, uh, probably of the plague. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of a mystery, his relationship with Elspeth. I mean, when he went back in 1526. He he had left her in 1526, travelled to England with two children. He went back and they had two more children in very quick succession in the the small time he was back uh, in Basel. So there was obviously something in their marriage, but she doesn't travel with him, possibly because he thinks he's going to return, possibly because he thinks he can run, she can continue to run a a workshop in Basel while, you know, who knows. But what is clear when he dies is he has developed another family. He has two children at nurse, so two young children in the 1540s. We don't know who the mother is. So a second English family has been established One of his oldest sons has come to join him. But I think at that point, it does seem that relationships with uh, his relationship with Elspeth had broken down because um, she does seem to sell some of his work. You know, there is evidence that, you know, she's moving on. He does look after her financially, however. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I don't think I knew that. So that's really interesting. And I know this is a very difficult question, but do you have a favourite Holbein portrait? You know, it is a difficult question. <laughs> and uh, so of course, I've got many favourites. But gun in the back, I love the portrait of Charles de Soulier, which is oh, the yes. portrait he did in 1534 of, uh, of one of the French ambassadors, not the famous ambassadors in the National Gallery, one who came after them. And he's a man of a certain age and he is magnificent. Mm. And I think if you look at that portrait, it is very clear that Holbein uses that as a model for the great portrait of Henry VIII. But, oh, my God, de Solier is magnificent, whereas Henry, of course, is only always sort of trying to be. That is a very impressive portrait. I I highly recommend everyone go and have a look at that. That's amazing, actually. Now, the last thing, Franny, that we do on episodes of Talking Tudors is what I call a little game of 10 to go. So it's just 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So what um, is the book that you're currently reading or that you've just read? Oh, I'm currently reading a book about Marie Therese of Austria. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) More study. Yeah, but the the problem when you're in my business (laughs) is leisure reading is not really much of an option. I mean, occasionally I try and sneak in a novel, but my bedtime reading is work. And that's an area I'm looking at just now. So there we go. (laughs) And obviously you have so many amazing historic houses and things to visit around you. Do you have one that you enjoy going to? Well, uh, gosh, a historic house. Well, okay, I'll do a bit of a plug here. I am a trustee of Turner's House 
Yeah, now not many, not many people know about Turner's House in London. It's in Twickenham in London. And this was a little cottage, really, a sort of gentleman's retreat that uh, J.N.W. Turner, R.A., built for himself. He designed it, he built it. It has been very recently restored and is now open to the public. And it is, if you love Turner, or if you're just really interested in early uh, 19th century architecture, it's a must. Now, moving on to the topic of food, do you have a favourite comfort food? Okay, it's a weird one. I'm not sure how this is really going to help your your <laughs> your listeners get to know me more, but when I'm ill, I have to have salt and vinegar crisps doused in vinegar. There you go. There's a tip for really, anyone. Really, really vinegary, and that makes me feel better. I don't know why. It's disgusting. <laughs> no, no, I wish I was, I was thinking I wish something I much could worse. Do a kind of Tudor <laughs> twist on this and say yes, absolutely. It's quails stuffed with prunes, you know, with honey and rosemary, but I can't. Sounds quite good, actually. Um, and do you have any pets? Yes, I have a Bedlington Terrier dog and two cats. And I just want to go back to the food question for a second. <laughs> do you have a signature recipe, something that you like to make? Oh, gosh, yeah, I've got quite a few. But what the kids, my kids really love is my gratin dauphinois. What about, I know obviously you're very busy and you've got a lot of work on, but what do you like to do to try and relax or unwind? I love wild swimming. Good. Do you do it still mm. over like the colder months? Yeah. Well, yeah. But, some, but then we might, I might put a wetsuit on, but yes. yeah, I love swimming and river swimming, sea swimming and river swimming. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly like my husband and son. We're, we're still currently in lockdown here, unbelievably. But um, ocean swimming has been their like lifesaver yeah. over the last Fantastic. three months. It's like a meditation, they say. Yes. So it's and really and I get a lot of my best ideas when I'm swimming. I was sw swimming quite recently and, and managed to sort out the chapter structure for my new book. <laughs> <laughs> always working, always working. <laughs> and what was your favourite? I might, maybe we can guess this one. What was your favourite subject at school? Yeah, it's always been art and art history. Art it really and has. Artists. That's great. So you knew early on what you wanted to, to do, which is good. I knew I wanted to communicate stuff about the arts and the arts I love. Yes, always. And lucky last, what is something that you'd love to learn more about a subject or an area? Oh, I would love to be able to speak Arabic. Oh, languages. Yes. Do you speak languages for any? Just French, really. Very helpful. No, I, I, I speak fluent French, but um, yeah, I'd, one of my projects, I think if I can find a bit of headspace is to try and get a, an evening class in Arabic. I always yeah. feel that you inhabit a different personality when you speak a different mm -hmm. language. And I'm definitely a slightly different version of myself when I'm speaking French. And I'm fascinated to explore the sort of uh, Arabic. I really am. I, 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 it's... I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I hope you get to do that, definitely. And sorry, last thing, final question is for a Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests to, to make a suggestion that our listeners can go off and check out after the episode. Sometimes people have websites, books, songs to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? 
Yeah, now I, I did wonder whether some of your other contributors may have suggested this, but um, you will tell me. It, there's a wonderful site, um, British History Online. Do you, are you familiar with this? Yes, yeah. Have, it, have other people I recommended it's been, this? It's been a while, but I, I think someone has at some point because I've done quite a lot of episodes, but, but, but that's okay. But it's, it's www.british-history.com dot ac.uk and what you can get via that website is if you look for Henry VIII letters and papers you can get all the court documents so you can just sit down and read all the ambassadors reports letters to the king his responses it's the most wonderful resource and it really puts you right at the heart of the the Tudor court. I totally agree with you. I actually, in preparation for writing a book that I'm sort of coming to the end of, amazingly, I spent six months just reading the state papers for two years. And it was amazing the things you can learn and the details yeah. and, and, you know, the yeah. things you don't often hear about. So I totally agree with you. I and I think that's, you know, you were talking about there's always stuff to find. I think those... You know, again, I think people quite often go to well-known bits that are often cited. Yes. But if you yes. just stray, you know, and, and just allow yourself to be immersed in that material, all sorts of surprising things are, th- are there. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really fantastic note to end on. Franny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to you. I have your book. It's exceptional. I think everyone needs to go and purchase it immediately. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.